Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a biotech podcast from Stats. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. We're coming to you from the Stat Newsroom here in Boston, Massachusetts. It is Thursday, March 22nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. House Republicans approved controversial right-to-try legislation, and they did it with the tacit support of FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. Good news for biotech unicorns. If you can't go public on the NASDAQ, you might find some luck in Hong Kong. And a kid from New Jersey got Spark Therapeutics gene therapy. We'll talk with Stats' Eric Budman, who reported from the operating room where it all happened. Finally, can a drug that blocks an enzyme called IDO make existing cancer immunotherapies even more effective? We're going to find out really soon. But first, a word from our sponsor. At Takeda, we work tirelessly every day to serve the needs of our patients. We aim to earn the trust of society and our customers through our integrity, fairness, honesty, and perseverance. We strive to be best in class and won't stop until we help create better health and a brighter future for people around the world. Learn more by visiting us at Takeda.com. Hours ago, House Republicans finally passed their right to try bill. So it's not clear what's next for the legislation when it moves along to the Senate, but the House passage is pretty clearly a victory for the right to try movement. And it's a defeat for the movement's critics. Yeah, so uh, I got on the phone with Michael Becker. Uh, Michael is a biotech industry consultant and he's also a cancer patient. Um, And he's spoken out against uh, right to try legislation. The supporters of uh, right to try have not been shy about you know, their next steps or what their hopes are. I mean, they, they really are uh, very vocal about dismantling the FDA and taking away um, some of that oversight and letting patients decide ultimately, you know, what they want to do. It's a, it's a return to the Wild West of uh, drug development before the FDA was uh, put into place. And that's that's a very scary thought to me. So we'll get back to the whole concept of the Wild West FDA in a minute, but what is actually in the version of this bill that the House passed? So this is a compromise bill. It sets up a new pathway for dying patients who want to sidestep existing FDA rules to request an experimental treatment. So what's in this compromise version? It limits the types of patients who can actually access this pathway. Also in this version, the FDA gets more insight into how it's used. All that sounds fairly reasonable, but critics say this bill is unnecessary because there already is an existing FDA program for these kinds of patients that approve some like 99% of requests. Um, you know, and critics also say, and this is getting back to, to Michael's point that he, that he mentioned earlier, that this is really kind of an attempt to defang uh, the FDA. Of course, the group behind this, the Arizona-based Goldwater Institute, has been a big critic of existing FDA regulations. There's certainly some concern that they might be emboldened here, try to do more to defame the FDA. So I want to interrupt that a bit to talk about monkey urine, if I could. Monkey urine? Yeah, so in the debate over this bill, Representative Morgan Griffin from, from Virginia kept making reference to the idea that in support of Right to Try, if he had a terminal illness and there were some drug that can conceivably keep him alive so he could see his children, he would take it. I said last week and I repeat it today, I would take any risk, including injecting monkey urine, if that meant I could spend a few more days, months, or years with my children. 
And <laughs> that was sort of fascinating to me because it underlines what a lot of critics of Right to Try have said, which is that it's unclear whether the men and women voting for it and supporting it in Congress really understand what's at stake here. Yeah, first of all, I don't know what sort of like brain synapse firing or misfiring has to go on in someone's head to sort of bring up monkey urine as an example. That's a little odd. But I think to your broader point, and I think Sarah Carlin at Politico uh, raised this issue on Twitter yesterday. You know, she said that you know she wished that somebody would explain to congressmen that just because a drug passes a phase one study doesn't mean that it's safe. Right. Of course, you know, if something like monkey urine, it's not about trying something, anything that has a shot in hell to work. It's about whether it could actively kill you. And I think one of the other things that we really need to worry about here with right to try legislation is that this opens up the possibility that you could have some unscrupulous companies pitching their sort of unproven or unsafe drugs to desperately ill patients, essentially taking advantage of them. So what did FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb think about all this? Scott was kind of on board. I mean, like sort of behind the scenes tacitly from what I understand that he was kind of playing along with this, at least the House version of the right to try legislation. Well, it's interesting. So if you go back to October when he testified before a congressional subcommittee on this, he was, I wouldn't say strongly against it, but I think it read negative. He seemed to describe, and, and totally reasonably, he's the commissioner of the FDA. He would like a powerful FDA, and he had concerns that the right to try movement and various suggestions that existed at that time would weaken the FDA as a regulatory body and thus put patients at risk and make his job that much more difficult to do. So by contrast, four former FDA commissioners came out with a pretty strong statement against the various versions of the right to try bills. So these are commissioners who served both under Obama and George W. Bush. They said the bills would, quote, erode protections for vulnerable patients, end quote. So you don't necessarily expect a sitting commissioner to come out that strongly. That's certainly not what we've seen in the past. But I think it is pretty telling how different that rhetoric is from what we saw from Gottlieb. Yeah, from where I sit, this is this whole right to try thing is just not a good look for Scott Gottlieb. I just, you know, I think he could have been. There's things that he could have done. I think to sort of maybe try to keep the FDA, you know, in you know more involved in this legislation. Well, it's kind of curious, too, because he has so much to say about drug prices, about monopoly rents collected by monopolistic companies, about how PBMs work, which are all things outside the purview of the FDA. But this is an issue that is deeply ingrained in the review and approval of new drugs, which is the D in FDA. And suddenly he's infinitely less loquacious. I also think it's worth taking a detour into some counterfactual history here. You know, this strikes me as the first time that we've seen a meaningful difference between Scott Gottlieb and the hypothetical FDA commissioner that President Hillary Clinton would have appointed in, you know, an alternate universe where she'd actually campaigned in Wisconsin. <laughs> I guess we were saying is, do you think if, if Hillary had won and she had picked a FDA commissioner that she would have been more vocal or, or the right to try wouldn't have passed? I think it's hard to envision a scenario where we have the cooperation that we saw from Gottlieb. And the, the curious thing, she might have kept uh, Dr. Robert Califf, who was an Obama appointee to FDA. And I, we know his opinions on Right to Try because he was a co-author of the, uh, the thing that Rebecca mentioned earlier. But also, I saw him in Austin at South by Southwest, and I pulled him aside before he got in his lift. And as he was getting in the door, he said, and I will not mimic his accent, um, basically, Damien, you got to get on right to try. You're letting me down, man, and then got in the car. So one assumes that were he empowered to not let him down, man, he would be doing so. Back up, though, Damien. Is Caliph a part of the delete Uber crowd? 
Maybe so, actually. It was definitely a lift. So I, <laughs> I don't know how to contextualize that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, getting back on point here, Rebecca. Um, what's interesting, what strikes me about, about this whole thing is that I think that a lot of the stuff that Gottlieb has done would probably also have been done under a Hillary Clinton FDA commissioner. You know, I agree with that. I think the FDA is under Trump versus President Hillary Clinton would have been, in a lot of ways, pretty indistinguishable. You know, I think the recent announcement that the FDA is moving to put in place a regulation that caps the amount of nicotine cigarettes can have seems right out of the Hillary playbook. Um, you know, it's hard to think of anything that they would have done differently so far other than right to try. What I'm curious about, though, and this isn't necessarily a defensive, Scott, but maybe a differentiator, is that is a Democratic president more likely to appoint an FDA commissioner who comes from the world of public health or public service to a greater degree than Scott, who was sort of pilloried in those hearings because of his coziness with pharma and his work in the investment community and et cetera. But in a sense, a lot of his like trenchant comments about how the system actually works sound like things he learned while he was in the system. And so arguably the Republican ideal of getting someone with like private sector experience is what informed Scott's ability to be as effective as he has been in some of this nuanced policy stuff with how the drug industry operates. Yeah, that's true. And I think, you know, sort of this democratic ideal that, oh, we don't want to have anybody with industry ties or industry experience uh, is a bad thing. I think, you know, I think Scott has shown that that, that, that kind of knowledge and that sort of uh, experience can actually be beneficial. So we talk a lot about the unicorn conundrum in biotech, which is this group of companies that have raised a ton of money from private investors, and now they have huge private valuations, and they can back themselves into a corner where it's hard to go public and it's hard to raise new money without taking a down round, without taking a discount on your valuation. So at least we heard about one alternative today, which was going east, right? Exactly. So the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, which has traditionally been very conservative, allowing only companies that have profits on the books, is considering letting pre-revenue biotech companies go public on Hong Kong, which would be a huge change. And who's actually interested here? So according to the Wall Street Journal, Moderna Therapeutics, um, which has, I think, a $7.5 billion reported valuation, is considering listing on both the NASDAQ and the Hong Kong Exchange. Grail, which is one of the liquid biopsy companies, it's also raised millions and millions of dollars. And then also Sorrento Therapeutics, uh, which is traded here in the United States and counts friend of stat and LA Times savior Patrick Soon Shang as an investor and partner. They're considering what would be a Hong Kong listing as well. So I'm sure that Patrick Soon Chang will be really happy to know that he's a friend of Stat. But but getting getting back to the unicorn thing, how does this how does listing in Hong Kong help these companies? So the theory is that if you reach such a high valuation that you can't convince U.S. investors to back that valuation in IPO, if you go over to Hong Kong, where and, and I don't want to you know pretend to read anybody's mind, but the Wall Street Journal laid this out very well there aren't the same number of sophisticated institutional investors from biotech. So the idea that you can get that valuation there and not here is kind of betting on dumb money giving you what you want. I find it difficult to see a lot of US-based companies deciding to list in Hong Kong. Uh, you know, you might see a lot of Asian companies, Chinese biotech companies using Hong Kong as their, as their place to list. But what do you think? I mean, do you think we're going to see a lot of like, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts biotech companies going over there? I don't think so. Being publicly traded in the U.S. is still the easiest way to get access to a broad range of capital from around the world. 
That being said, there are some dynamics at play that make it pretty interesting to me. So you kind of set up what might be a marriage of convenience for certain kinds of companies that might struggle to go public here. As I mentioned, the Hong Kong exchange is sort of in a weird spot. There are exchanges in Shanghai and Shenzhen that compete with it. And furthermore, actual unicorns from China don't necessarily want to go public on the Hong Kong exchange. They missed the Alibaba IPO, which was the basically Amazon of China that went public for, I think, $25 billion here in New York. And furthermore, nobody thinks they're going to get the Saudi Aramco IPO, which is probably going to go to London or New York. So they're in a bit of a bind. And by opening up the floodgates to companies that are in a bit of a bind in the US, you kind of see a place where there's a perfect harmony there. I also kind of see a place here where we could have a bubble. Exactly. And so that's why Hong Kong has been so conservative in the past. So it could be a different kind of marriage of convenience that ends with a brutal divorce, wherein they welcome very risky early stage and overvalued biotech companies. Those risky and overvalued biotech companies flop, and then suddenly it's dragged down the weight of their market that they had been so previously conscientious to protect. And so if a bubble popped in the Hong Kong exchange, that wouldn't just be a problem there, right? It could also destabilize all sorts of other markets. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is all interconnected, and that's what makes it fascinating, honestly. So guys, if this, does, if this Hong Kong thing does gain steam, which one of us is working overnights? Not me. Fine. Late last year, Spark Therapeutics became the first U.S. biotech to secure approval of a gene therapy to treat a rare inherited disease. This week, that first patient was treated. So the drug is called Luxturna, and it's meant to treat a rare form of blindness. And joining us today is Eric Budman, who was actually in the operating room for that first procedure. And I'll have to say, Eric, this is your second week in a row you're joining the podcast, so thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. So let's set the stage here a little bit. There's a 13-year-old kid named Jack Hogan. He has that rare inherited form of blindness. He's, him and his family have been waiting for this gene therapy to become available. And then, bang, this week, it's happening here in Boston. And Eric, you are in the operating room. Yeah, and so it's not just you know injecting a drug and that's it. It actually involves some surgery. And so part of the reason is that you have to be able to inject the drug inside the retina. And to get to the retina, you have to be able to suck out this gel that fills the back of the eye that's called vitreous gel. And, and that brings me to one of the lines in your story, which I, I, as a fellow reporter who could not write nearly as well as you, I, I loved. And what you said was, suddenly the inside of Jack's eye became a snow globe set on Mars, flakes swirling against a backdrop of red. I love that, Eric. Thanks, Adam. So. What's going on there is that the gel is clear and the surgeon wants to make sure that he's actually sucking the gel out. And so they inject a drug that looks sort of like snow. It's these whitish flakes. And then as they begin to suck it out, you see that swirling upwards like in a snow globe. So Eric, what does this gene therapy actually do? Patients with this rare form of blindness have mutations in a very specific gene, which is RPE65. And so they're actually using a virus as a vehicle to insert a healthy copy of that gene so that they're able to process light properly. And like all drugs, of course, gene therapy is not free. And in this case, it's $850,000 for both eyes. You got it. So what I understand was the, the company Spark Therapeutics, they didn't really talk to you about kind of the mechanisms of reimbursement or the insurance uh, in relation to this patient, right? They did talk a little bit about some of the programs that they've set up through Express Scripts. So, you know, 
to make it possible for insurers to pay in installments and to sort of sell the drug straight to the insurer so the hospital isn't a middleman, so that there isn't a markup, and other programs like that. But they didn't give me specifics for this particular patient. Right, and it'll be interesting because one of the, you know, when, when Spark priced this and they launched that, they talked a lot about these, about these sort of proposals to kind of help mitigate the high cost. And, you know, one of the things was kind of a money-back guarantee, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of pledging to sort of to reimburse the insurance companies if, if this doesn't work. Yeah, and I think the details of how that might work aren't 100% clear. I think they're still working that out. So how long after the surgery will we know whether it worked, whether it's for this 13-year-old kid or for anyone who gets this in the future? Well, in the clinical trial, some people saw improvement as early as one month after the procedure, and so they do have a follow-up appointment in about a month to look at how Jack's vision is doing. So getting back to the operating room, uh, this is a really expensive drug. It's sitting there in a syringe at like $425,000 worth of liquid. What was that like for the people there? They seemed pretty nervous to handle it. And there was a moment where the whole room paused as the surgeon and the nurse tried to figure out how they were going to get these syringes out of the plastic bag. And they settled on a plan, which was that the nurse would hold open the bag, the surgeon would take them out one by one with forceps, and it sort of looked like he was handling a venomous snake. Like, God forbid he drops it. Yeah, that would be a very expensive mistake. And then when he was actually administering the drug, he had some trouble finding the right spot or creating the little blister of fluid that he needs to create in order to get the drug in there. And he was feeling pretty nervous because he had to use the backup syringe. And so, so that had to be a tense moment. Yeah, he called it a nail biter. I assume you're going to sort of follow up and we'll, we'll get to know sort of how Jack does here. Yeah, I certainly hope so. Then we'll have you on the podcast again. Thank you. I can't wait. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. So as we speak, the biopharma industry is making billions of dollars selling drugs that turn the immune system on tumors, and it's been very effective for certain patients. But it doesn't work for everyone, and thus there's a rush to find things that might add on to these drugs to make them more broadly usable. That's right, Damien. So the question that is going to be answered relatively soon is, you know, can a drug that blocks an enzyme called IDO uh, make existing cancer immunotherapies even more effective? So we're gonna get an answer to that question, or at least a partial answer, when a biotech company called Insight announces results from a study. This is a closely watched phase three trial involving Insight's so-called IDO inhibitor. It's a drug called Epicatostat. Right, and so we wanted to spend some time on, on the podcast this week to kind of preview this insight study because it really does have some far-ranging ramifications you know, for cancer patients, for the fledgling cancer immunotherapy field, and just for biotech stocks in general. And it's timely because Insight has told people that they're going to provide this data within about three months, and investors are weirdly confident that we're going to hear it in April. Right. So, so Rebecca, let's maybe step back for a second here and, and kind of give us like this cancer immunotherapy for dummies lesson to kind of to better understand where the whole field is going. Right. So there are a bunch of different types of cancer immunotherapy drugs, but the biggest ones approved today are called checkpoint inhibitors. These are blockbuster, best-selling drugs. 
We're talking Keytruda from Merck, Opdivo from Bristol-Myers Squibb. They're very effective, and they work by basically lifting the break off of the immune system. The idea is that that way T cells can seek out and kill cancer cells. Right, and as Damien alluded to before, checkpoint inhibitors, they're, they're not perfect. You know, they only work for a minority uh, of cancer patients. And thus a multi-billion dollar crush of research and development. So these companies have constructed this crazy intractable latticework of combination trials where basically you take a checkpoint inhibitor and pair it with whatever, monkey urine perhaps, that might boost its efficacy and make it so that more patients respond to these drugs. Which brings us back to IDO inhibitors and this INSIGHT clinical trial. Really simply, IDO is an enzyme that helps put T cells to sleep. And so when T cells are inactive, they have a harder time finding or killing uh, cancer cells. So INSIGHT's drug is an IDO inhibitor. It blocks IDO, therefore activating these T cells. Interestingly, though, IDO inhibitors don't work very well on their own. But there's some data suggesting that IDO inhibitors might work better if they're paired with something like Keytruda. Right. So INSIGHT is running this phase three clinical trial. Uh, everyone calls it ECHO 301. Um, Damien, tell us a little bit about how this trial is designed. They take 700 patients with newly diagnosed skin cancer. Half of them get INSIGHT's drug and Keytruda, which is Merck's checkpoint inhibitor, and the other half get placebo and Keytruda alone. So the goal, of course, for INSIGHT is to demonstrate that adding its drug to Keytruda, which is a multi-billion dollar product, is better than getting Keytruda alone. And what are the betting odds here? Are there ways to predict the outcome of this trial? You know, there are some important benchmarks to keep in mind here. And first, you can think about this as how well do these checkpoint inhibitors perform when they're used by themselves to treat melanoma patients? And we actually have those data. Uh, the answer is roughly six to seven months median progression-free survival for Keytruda or Abdivo, again, as a monotherapy in melanoma. And so just to make this a bit more complicated, Bristol-Myers, which markets Opdivo, another checkpoint inhibitor, they have approval to treat melanoma patients with a combination of Opdivo and Yervoy, which is an older immunotherapy drug. And in that trial, the trial that they used to get approval, the median progression-free survival for the combination was 11.7 months, roughly one year. There's also safety to keep in mind. So the Opdivo-Yervoy combination causes a lot of side effects. For example, it's hard for some skin cancer patients to tolerate. And that means that this Insight drug paired with Keytruda could also win if it's shown to be safer. Although, you know, at the end of the day, of course, efficacy counts the most. And so, Adam, do we have any data from like early stage studies that might clue us in on what this Insight-Merck combo might look like? Yeah, Damien, we do. You know, Insight conducted this phase two study uh, in patients with all kinds of different, different types of cancer. Um, there was no control arm for that study, but still, when they tested this in melanoma patients, they found a um, you know, progression-free survival of around 22 months. So that must bode well for a positive outcome in this study, right? Well, you know, kind of not exactly. I, you know, that 22-month uh, progression-free survival benefit was really in a relatively small number of patients. Statistically, the, the margin of error was wide, so that 22 months might not actually be real. It could actually be a lot shorter. You know, this is, again, this is why we get, we get back to the fact that, you know, we want biotech companies to conduct randomized, you know, placebo-controlled phase three studies. And so from the investor perspective, what is the sentiment on Wall Street for inside stock going into this data reveal? You know, I think the operative word here is, is pessimistic. 
Right. The sentiment seems pretty lousy. The best case scenario among investors seems to be that the study has toss-up odds to succeed. We're talking about a coin toss here. Yeah, and I think that's reflected in Insight's you know, kind of incredibly shrinking stock price. Um, if you look back about a year ago, Insight was trading near $150 per share, and everyone was super bullish about IDO. Today, the stock is you know down near ninety dollars. You know, so I think confidence in this whole IDO thesis is brittle, and so you know maybe a lot of the downside or the bear case here has been kind of taken out by Insight shrinking stock price. Which means though that the upside must be humongous. No doubt. And that does it for this week's edition of the Read Out Loud. A big thank you to Matthew Orr and Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Jeff Delvisio is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you think about this week's episode, recommendations you have for guests, where are you listening from, or just rant about how horribly wrong we are. And you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. See you next week, guys.